You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Strangers and the Strange Dead by Kipler on AO3 and Gossamer. Chapter 1 That winter, when our town was a layover spot for strangers and the strange dead, I was riding the river. I liked to write true things, things I could know. Water and stones, brick and ground, and the whir of cars under the highway overpass. Most days, walking home from work, I would stop in the center of the Bradenton Bridge and watch the ice pile and crack, watch the milky green evening sky reflect in the still open pool of water beyond the legs of the bridge. That picture, the green milk sky, is a true thing about the river, and people who live near the river nod when they read it and say, oh yes, she knows how it is. And though it's truth, the January evening water is just a piece of the river. To tell the river's story whole and full, I would have to stand and watch the water for years, unmoving. And even then, I would not know the things beneath the surface, the eddies and black things. The story of people is like that. It's made of bits and shards of things, a smell that sits in the air, the slide of a finger. We steal what we can see and piece it together, mend the seams to make a story. I was in the coffee shop late afternoon, mid-January. I liked to work the afternoon shift from 11 to 4.30 because no one came for a bagel or a sandwich at 4 o'clock. The most I had to do was brew another pot of decaf, refresh the cream in the creamer. That gave me time to sit in the big booth and write. I was working to save money to start at college the next fall. Technically, I was too old to be a freshman, 21, but it was time for me to get out of town. So I sat alone in the coffee shop with my books and my paper when the door opened and the bell went off to alert me. A man stood there in the slanting light. I couldn't really see him, but heard his voice. I need some food. I got up and moved behind the counter. We close in half an hour, I said. There's not much left. A couple muffins and some beef barley. Soup? The man asked. And I looked at him then because his voice shook and his teeth chattered as he finished speaking. He was slight, swallowed by the jacket he wore. His lined face was dirty or bruised. I couldn't tell which and his right coat sleeve was torn from elbow to cuff. At first I thought he was drunk, but then I saw a drop of water run off the pull cord of his hood and realized that he was wet and cold. You okay? I asked, wondering if I should be alone with him. He looked at me, then pointed out the window toward the hills. I was up there, he said. I need some food. Your car break down? I asked. No, I was up in the woods. Up in the woods was nothing in summer and even less in winter. Bare trees, cold ground, our little mountain, and then another and 20 minutes drive on Route 60 to the next town. You were camping? I asked. 
The man stared at me, his face blank as though I'd been speaking a language he'd forgotten. I pressed on. Were you lost? Lost, he said. Yes. God, I said, and scalded myself pulling the ladle out of the soup pot. I brought a bowl to the man, and he looked at it for a minute, as if he'd forgotten how to eat, too. But then he picked up the bowl, no spoon, and drank the broth down in a series of gulps. The barley and celery he pushed into his mouth with the fingers of his left hand. The fingers were shaking still. Can I get another bowl? he asked. The smell of him hit me then. I knew it from hunting parties and schools of fishermen, times when they'd come back from a trip to the woods with no running water and no women. And I knew the smell from trips to Boston, walking past the men on the street corners, the ones who rattled tin cans as I moved by. People who are tied to normal life don't carry that smell. I hurried another bowl of soup to the table. The man ignored me. He was caught up in swallowing the food as fast as he could. I don't know why I should have felt strange for calling the police. But still, I dialed quickly, and when Wayne Sampson answered the phone, my voice was quiet, like secret telling. There's a guy here who says he was lost on the mountain, I said. Did you get any reports of missing campers? No, Wayne said. You think he's been drinking? No, but he's acting strange. Don't worry, sweetheart. I'll be right over. Wayne had been my father's friend, and he honored that by carrying a responsibility for me. I hung up the phone and pretended I was straightening things out behind the counter. Wayne came a few minutes later as the man was finishing his second muffin and draining a cup of hot chocolate. Wayne walked over, his chest pumped out just like a sheriff in a movie or something, my protector and king of the town. Hey, buddy, he said, holding out his hand. I'm Wayne Sampson. I'm the chief of police in Bradenton. Wendy tells me you were lost on the mountain. The man looked from his cup to Wayne's outstretched hand, looked hard at me for a moment. Yeah, he said, then went back to his food. Wayne put down his hand. You got a name? Thomas Hopkins, the man said, then paused. Thomas Hopkins. Do you have any identification, Mr. Hopkins? Wayne asked. This was funny to the man somehow. He snorted bubbles into the cocoa. No driver's license, he said. No cards, no wallet, no money. Plenty of identification if you can read it. The man tipped his head, lifted the hair off his neck, and leaned in as if Wayne should see something there. A stamp on his skin, maybe, that read, Yes, sir, this is Thomas Hopkins. Wayne gave me a knowing look and shrugged his shoulders. Well, listen, Mr. Hopkins, how about if I pay Wendy for the food you ate and you and I go and have a little talk in my office? Hopkins lifted his head again and nodded slowly. You got warm clothes there? He asked. Mine are wet through. Wayne nodded and handed me a ten from his wallet. Then Hopkins stood and he and Wayne moved, dripping across the linoleum and out the door. Sometime in the night they came. 
the state police and the FBI and two of the news crews from Boston, not just Manchester. They set up a kind of encampment on the town green between the coffee shop and the police station. That next morning, as I came over the bridge, I could see the cars and the flashing lights. I didn't know until they found me that they were here about the day before, about the man Wayne had taken out of the coffee shop. They all asked the same questions. Did you see the man approach? Was anyone with him? Was he dropped off outside the coffee shop or did he walk up? I stood there dumbly in the filming light saying, no, no, I don't know, no. How was I supposed to know to watch for these details when everything looked plain and small and ordinary? A wet man coming in looking for a bowl of beef barley soup was all I saw. I wasn't working that day, so I went to the library and hid in the stacks. The FBI agents found me there. It is a strange thing to live in a town where people know you so well and will tell your hiding places to strangers. The FBI people were a matched pair, well-dressed in dark gray suits and smart, polished shoes that were useless in the snow and ice. The man was tall, roughly handsome, with a deep voice. The woman was bird-tiny, but wore heels. Her red hair was cropped close to her head, a little boy cut, the kind that looks good on some tiny women. They gave me their names, and I tried to lay them on top of the dozens of other names I'd been given that day, but they slid down and away. So my brain cataloged them as the FBI agents, big, dark-haired, handsome man, and slight, red-haired woman. They sat me across from them at the big oak table in the front hall. Mrs. Hayes at the reference counter didn't even pretend to be referring. She stopped work and stared at us. We're sorry to take up your time, the woman agent said. I don't think I'll be much help, I replied. I mean, I would help, but I don't know anything. The woman quizzed me on what I remembered, the same quiz the state police had given me. From which direction did Thomas Hopkins approach? How did he look? Was he alone? I shrugged and shook my head and said no or yes or I don't remember at the right times. The male FBI agent listened mostly and watched his partner, her fingers tapping mutely against the tabletop, her lips pursed, her one eyebrow raised as she asked me questions and I could not answer them. Who is this guy? I finally asked. What's the big deal? The woman exchanged a look with her partner and answered quietly. He's been missing, she said for a very long time and we're trying to find out where he's been. My grandfather and I sat and watched the news at five that day. I was on TV with my hair a mess and no lipstick. My mother would be rolling over in her grave. Just a little pink, she would have said, to give you some color. This is what Chet Curtis said on Channel 5. A small town in New Hampshire was the scene yesterday of the mysterious reappearance of Thomas Hopkins. Mr. Hopkins disappeared in 1994 and has been missing for more than 11 years. Long-running police and federal investigations into his whereabouts had failed to turn up any leads. 
And there I was, pale lips and all, saying, I didn't notice where he came from. He just walked in the shop. Then Wayne was on the camera, puffing his chest, just like he had in the coffee shop. I assessed Mr. Hopkins' condition and determined that he might be suffering from hypothermia, at which point I called an ambulance. Then Chet went on. Mr. Hopkins was transported to Memorial Hospital in Concord. Doctors there say that while he is disoriented, he seems to have suffered no serious physical injuries. It is not known where Hopkins has been for the past 11 years. His family members have issued the following statement. We rejoice that Tommy has been returned to us and we look forward to bringing him home as soon as possible. My grandfather kissed me on the head when the story was over. He was proud of me, his TV star granddaughter. I did an internet search that night for Thomas Hopkins. It was a common name. I turned up 1,603 matches. I narrowed my search with the words missing person and found just one page devoted to the man I wanted, a site set up by his son, Jeffrey. There was a photo of Hopkins on the front page, along with the words still missing. The picture of Hopkins showed a young man with a thick neck and broad shoulders, his face unlined, so different from the man I had seen. Underneath the image was a short paragraph. Tommy Hopkins left home on July 16, 1994, on his way to the airport in Detroit, Michigan. His car was found undamaged by the side of Route 80 in Pennsylvania. He has not been seen or heard from since. If you have any knowledge of Tommy Hopkins' whereabouts, please contact us immediately. I clicked a link marked The Investigation. It moved me to a detailed timeline listing information gathered by investigators since July 16, 1994. There was a photo of Hopkins' car, undamaged indeed, sitting with a full tank of gas by a busy highway. There was a photo of Hopkins' family, his wife, and sons. There was a photo marked federal investigators on the case. This last picture was grainy, shot from a distance, harder to see. At first, my eyes skimmed past it, ignoring the movie-familiar shot of the agents in gray suits and sunglasses. But something caught my attention, and I scanned back, focused more closely. There among the men, in their sameness, was a bird-tiny woman in heels. Her red hair was longer in the photo, chin-length, softly curled away from her face. But her stance, her body language was the same. She had followed Thomas Hopkins from Pennsylvania in 1994 to Bradenton in 2006. I saw the FBI agents in the coffee shop the next morning. I wasn't working until afternoon, but I had to get caffeine like everyone else, and the coffee was good at the shop, and for me it was free. So I slouched in the corner with my book and sipped and read and watched the people. I watched the FBI people especially because they knew something about the story of Thomas Hopkins. The male agent smiled at the woman as he passed her the cream. She smiled back distractedly. Her attention was focused on a set of files she had spread open on the table. 
Her feet in the high shoes were bent under her seat, crossed at the ankle. Her partner's legs sprawled into her space. His feet rested inches from hers, settled there in a gentle fencing in that she didn't know about. I watched the man, saw the way his eyes did not leave the woman. It was the same as it had been in the library. It was as if she were a thing he was studying. I looked at his face and again at their feet in a snow-melt puddle under the table and wondered what lines ran between them. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there. <laughs>